I grew up homeless in the wilderness. This is Northern California in the late 70s and through the 80s, uh, where we were living off grid, six years old. We're living out by a stream. There's no roads into where we're at. We've got beams lashed up into the trees. And that's where our bedding is at at night because there's rattlesnake dens. That's the environment. I'm, I'm being taught how to capture live rattlesnakes by hand. That's the environment I live in. Like, here's a here's how you carve a forked stick, and this is how you entice it to strike, so that you can you can capture and pin its neck, and then pick it up, and then hold it, and know how to hold and control this snake while it's wrapping around your arm. With the only intent in its life at that point is to kill you. And so, you know, learning how to manage your fear, because if you don't, if you let fear overtake you, you're going to die. And if you don't respect it and you're just careless and have no fear whatsoever, you're going to die. Welcome to episode 102 of the Michaela Peterson podcast. Today, I'm happy to introduce Chris Duffin. For those of you who don't know him, Chris is the world record holder for squatting and deadlifting 1,000 pounds for reps, 1,000 pounds. That's incredible. Not only that, he's also a serial entrepreneur in health and fitness and the co-founder of Kabuki Strength and other multiple prominent brands. We had a chat about his absolutely unbelievable life story and entrepreneurial ventures. This guy has been through so much. He lived in the wild. He came from such adversity that hopefully it'll make you so guilty about not improving your own life that you will. I love talking to Chris and I think you'll all enjoy this episode. If you do, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Chris Duffin, welcome to my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Been uh, looking forward to it for this for a little while. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I invited you. Had a had a weird year, but I'm glad to be <laughs> speaking with you now. Well, I've been watching. It's a, a lot of good stuff, always ups and downs, but uh, you know, the challenges are, they're, they're what make us better, right? Oh man, I hope so. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about because you've had a hell of a life. So before we get into that, um, can you give a brief background about who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a little tough to do, uh, as far as brief, because I play in a lot of different areas, but, um, uh, most people kind of know me as this uh, guy that's done feats, feats of strength, right? Uh, but uh, I also own a number of companies that I've uh, co-founded. So Kabuki Strength is the primary one, and we make the best biomechanically sound uh, barbell equipment in the world, as well as education uh, and coaching. So we've got uh, probably the, the leading scientific advisory board within the uh, within the fitness is definitely exercise mm -hmm. equipment realm. Uh, also co-founded barefoot athletics, which is a shoe company based on, uh, uh, foot, uh, mechanics and build fast formula, which is kind of my supplementation, uh, uh, program. So, so yeah, I'm a successful entrepreneur, but before this stuff, I actually did, uh, I did lead turnarounds and things like that for about 20 years. I ran automotive and aerospace manufacturing companies doing turnarounds, prepping companies for sale, things of that nature. So um, only person that's ever squatted and deadlifted a thousand pounds. And I did it for reps. That'll be a, a documentary that's coming out next year. So I, I mentioned all these things because I, I like to show 
the the end result. So when people hear like where I came from, they can understand um, the you know just how far that is. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's three things. I've been highly successful in in leadership and business, in athletics, as well as entrepreneurship, which is usually you find one or the other. And uh, so mm-hmm. my specialty is kind of biomechanics as well as rehab and uh, this kind of return to play, getting people out of pain and working in those areas. So I, I do a lot of speaking at like physical therapy and chiropractic colleges and other events, uh, things like that. Cool. Okay. We have quite a bit to cover. I think before we get into the successes, I think we should start with a bit of the hardships you went through, uh, growing up so people can have an idea of where you came from. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll try to do the elevator pitch version and hit the high points, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I grew up, we're not just talking poor, but because today in this world, you see people that, you know, have challenged for, for, you know, income, but they still have their smartphone. They still have Mm -hmm. their clothes. They still have their gaming centers. I grew up homeless in the wilderness. So this is Northern California in the late seventies and through the eighties, where we were living off grid. Uh, There was times like six years old. We're living out by a stream. There's no roads into where we're at. We've got beams lashed up into the trees. And that's where our bedding is at at night because there's rattlesnake dens. I'm six years old. My brother's four. Uh, my sister's uh, like one year old and my mom's pregnant. And uh, and that's the environment. I'm, I'm being taught how to capture live rattlesnakes by hand because that's the environment I live in. Like, here's a, here's how you carve a forked stick. And this is how you entice it to strike so that you can, you can capture and pin its neck and then pick it up and then hold it and know how to hold and control this snake while it's wrapping around your arm with the only intent in its life at that point is to kill you. And so, you know, learning how to manage your fear, because if you don't, if you let fear overtake you, you're going to die. And if you don't respect it, and you're just careless and have no fear whatsoever, you're going to die. Like, so I learned these lessons uh, around a lot of things in a different manner at a very young age. So it was that bring, it wasn't always necessarily homeless. Like during the school year, we would be closer to society. We might have something. It might just be missing a shack, missing running water or electricity or both. So it's like, you know, during the summer, you're filling up a gallon jug down on the stream and setting it out on a rock and letting it heat up through the day so you can dump it over your head. Or, you know, during the winter, uh, it's like in, in Oregon where we had, you know, snow, I'd be out in a couple feet of snow in the back, out the back door after heating up a pot. You know, this is in junior high on the, on the wood, on the wood stoves. So I could try to try to clean because I'm getting made fun of at school because I, I smell funny. And that's, it's just a different environment. And when you're, what people don't realize, so yeah, when I talk about it, people will kind of fantasize about it going, man, that must've been amazing, but they miss the piece. Well, as far as the, like the living in the wilderness and not having, you know, the connection with all the things like we didn't have, we didn't have TV. We didn't have radio. We just read books. My parents were very intelligent. They just chose not to be part of society. My, my mom was actually going to school okay. to be a, a chemical engineer, top of her class. My father was a member of Mensa. Like it, we, 
our li- the library was was our friend. That's where we read books by candlelight, by flashlight, like consumed a mass amount of. But what people don't realize when they kind of romanticize this life of you know foraging for food and hunting animals and living in tents and growing up in this off grid is the people that are living there for non altruistic reasons are ones that are away from society because you know, they beat somebody for, you know, to death with a tire iron for $20. Uh, they, we had, it, it's still tough to talk about, but I covered in the scope of the book, but I dealt with murderers. I saved my mother from a serial killer that tracked her later in life as well. When he we got out of prison, we dealt with human trafficking that directly affected our house as a result of, uh, as a result of police corruption. And so much like you read my book and it's going to be like, people be like, man, that's crazy. Go watch the documentary Murder Mountain. It's on Netflix. And that took place 50 miles from where we were at. It was about three hours, 50 miles, because it's so, so remote and the roads are windy. But you'll see just how much I'm talking about people disappearing, (laughs) murderers, serial killers, corruption, all this stuff. So it was, it was wild. We got taken by the state for a while. And, you know, we were in Northern California, so let's just be upfront. My parents were growing weed for a living. That's, they're trying to find a way of making a life outside of society. And so we're up in the, you know, the, the golden triangle, as they called it, which is kind of what the, the murder mountain uh, documentary is about, but in these remote uh, areas that were highly prized for growing marijuana. But once they got us back, they decided to stay out of the drug trade. So we moved to Oregon, the Eastern side of the state where there's a lot of deserts and mountains and is more remote and kind of got into mining uh, at that point and just fell back right in the same kind of living, just staying clean of, of, you know, the drug trade so that they didn't have a chance of losing us again. And uh, things just kind of, I ended up kind of helping. I had three younger sisters and a younger brother, and I was kind of the one that took care of all of them when they were out tending the crops or in later years mining, or I was helping mining and help, helping with the kids. And then when I left to go to school, which I realized is the only way out, like I'm watching, I'm, I'm, I'm watching people die around me. I'm watching them go to prison. I'm watching them succumb to drugs. And, it, and I'm like, I have to figure a way out of this. So there's no, a lot of people put themselves in this, uh, you know, burning the bridges mentality it was kind of forced on me. There's just no place to go back to. And so I, uh, I did really well in school as valid Victorian as a state level athlete. And I got a, uh, a really solid scholarship academic to go to school for a dual engineering degree. And I'll just shorten the story here, but I ended up taking custody and raising, uh, my three younger sisters because wow. things got worse at home. Once I left and like that stabilizing force that I was in the home, you know, I was working and providing money when I was there, you know, all through junior high, high school. And when I left things, my, my stepfather just descended into, uh, uh, his mental health just deteriorated to a point. My mom disappeared and I had to, I had to take, take a step up. So I raised my three younger sisters while I, pursued my engineering degrees, went on to do my MBA. I was working full-time during that, that whole, all of that as well. And then, and then all the other stuff happened after that. So, uh, as far as, uh, the business success and other stuff, but that's, that's the early years. So 
So yeah, I know a little bit about struggle. Like I've had nearly, if you talk about like the nine major, you know, things that traumatize people and affect their, their life, I've had eight of them and probably nine. I just have some, uh, memory failures in some other areas. And I don't really feel I need to, uh, do hypnosis and kind of explore and bring back some of those memories. So, um, yeah, yeah. I know a little bit about it. Okay. Well, that's a hell of a story. That's sounds like quite a life that you wouldn't necessarily wish on somebody. This episode is brought to you by grass fed beef organs by ancestral supplements. Ancestral Supplements makes New Zealand sourced nose-to-tail organ meats, bone marrow, and beef organs in simple, convenient gelatin capsules. Traditional peoples, Native Americans, and early ancestral healers believed that eating the organs from a healthy animal would strengthen and support the health of the corresponding organ of the individual. For instance, the tr- traditional way, for instance, the traditional way of treating a person with a weak heart was to feed the person the heart of a healthy animal. Similarly, eating the kidneys of a healthy animal was believed to support urinary ailments, and overall kidney health. Pancreas was fed to people with digestive problems. Spleen was fed to people with immune and blood deficiencies. Our early ancestors knew this, which is why their traditional diets included the frequent and nourishing consumption of nose-to-tail organs. Visit ancestralsupplements.com to see what they can do for you. Ancestral supplements, putting back in what the modern world has left out. Enjoy the rest of the episode. How did you... Did, did you manage to avoid resentment for some of the things you've been through? Yeah. And you'll, you'll see it when you read, like, I, I still hold, you know, my parents in high regard, just, I know what they were trying to do. And like my mother still lives. I mean, she showed me some amazing things. She showed me about perseverance, no matter what the struggle, always moving forward. And she chose that really hard life, but I, I got to experience just, you know, the trials and tribulations that come across from it and trying to keep that together. The, the unity of family, like we did everything together um, and people don't realize like it was us against the world. And then the biggest thing that I, I learned is just this, this authenticity, this, it's more than authenticity. It is it is doing what you're going to do, being yourself and creating this own world for yourself around you, despite what anybody says and living the way that you want to live. And, and, and that's, that's had a huge impact on my life. I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest thing. So those, those key attributes are, are really important. And I've rebuilt my relationship with her. We have a, a good relationship. Um, I let her, uh, rebuild it with my sisters first, because that was the, I was, I wasn't resentful so much as disappointed and she needed because she kind of left them. And so once they had kind of repaired that relationship, I'm like, okay, you know, it's open doors for me because I wanted to be there to support my sisters first. And so once they'd, they'd rekindled and rebuilt that, uh, I stepped in and we've had, uh, a, you know, a, a very great relationship now the last like 20 years or so, 15 years uh, that it's been. How do you start rebuilding a relationship with, with a person who ends up hurting you by leaving? How did you, how did you even start that? Yeah. So 
like I said, for me, it wasn't so much as hurting me directly as much as, like I said, it was the impact on that I could have seen that I had on my, on my sisters and that that's where my priority was. But this, I think this might be a, a, a larger conversation here. And uh, let me diverge a little bit because there's some, yeah. I'm going to get back to your question, but I, I, I actually see a pretty significant issue today, like in our media or with entrepreneurs or athletes and so on, that they're always talking about having the right people around you and cutting out the people that are naysayers, negative, the haters and so on. And, and I agree, like people are like, they're the fuel that inspires, like that is life. Life is connections. Life is where you choose to invest your efforts and pour yourself out into and how you're going to affect the people around you. And, and so you need to have that core people that your, your resources are going to great effort and affecting, but also that are fueling you that want to be a, that are challenging you to be a better, you know, version of yourself Mm -hmm. that they're expecting more of you and you're expecting more of them. Like this is, it's so critical to have this. And you'll see this theme in a lot of things in my life that I've done around, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, building business, athletics, so on. But the big mess here is understanding that just because somebody is verbally not agreeing with you doesn't mean that they're a naysayer or a hater. And just because there's conflict doesn't mean that because that person it's, you really got to understand those, those root of what they are and why they're doing the things that they're doing, because you could have somebody around you that's rah, 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 all great, no conflict, easy life, best friend. But at the end of the day, they actually, they're looking forward to and enjoy the times that you fail, that they, they don't want you to, they don't want you to succeed. Um, and you could have somebody else that is calling you to the table appears to be a hater, but they're doing it because they, they believe in you and they see that maybe where you're going and they're, they're, they're challenging you to, to look and reflect at these things in a manner. Right. And so this is, a I'm going to, I'll tie yeah. this back to that conversation, but this is a really important piece that pe- I think people really, really miss because they want to find this environment where it's, conflict free and easy. And, you know, it's just like the retiring on a beach and drinking Mai Tais, but in, in my workplace, is it like that? And, and, and it shouldn't be, I, I see this so much. People want yes, people around them, and you're going to end up not achieving what you're capable of not being true to yourself by having people question you. And like my, my businesses, we have, you know, some heated staff meetings we have, but it's all because we believe we're, we're, we have the same values. We have the same envision in North star. We're all part of this team to get there. And just because I founded it, doesn't mean I don't get called to the freaking table, uh, you know, at times. And that's, that is really positive. And in so much that this is one of the core reasons I separated from my, my first, uh, my first wife as well. We were good friends. It was comfortable, but Hmm. they didn't want to see me succeed in these other ventures. They wanted to see some, you know, failure so that I'd stay with just the the regular job and be a normal person and not have, you know, the the challenge uh, that it brings and the chaos that it brings into life. Right. 
And so back to your question that I've been uh, maybe avoiding, I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking through it while I'm talking, which is hard. I'm a terrible multitasker. Uh, it doesn't look but, like it. <laughs> but uh, I actually am. <laughs> but it's you can focus on one thing at a time. You can do a lot of good stuff. But, but the, you know, it's understanding that in her own way, my mother wanted the best for us. She wanted this different environment than most would have. And it ended up bringing a lot of challenge and strife and trauma and mixed emotions. Uh, same with my father. I mean, there's so much like mixed emotions there, but at the same time, understanding I am who I am because of this, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yet at the same time, if I think about my children being in the environment, just the thought of that brings just deep sadness to me, but I wouldn't change what I have for anything because those experiences taught me so much. And my mother, you know, she wanted to, to live that life and she wanted to have, you know, her children understand that they the same thing that they can, they can create and build the world in a manner that they want. They can choose to not be stuffed into just this prepackaged, you know, <laughs> life that is that everything kind of pushes us towards and even more so now in society that we have now to just be a consumer, uh, you know, to have things fill instead of actually being out there and creating and forging things in the way that you want. So, so understanding that helps you build a relationship. And just like, so my mother, I mean, it's, it's just, she is so raw and she is so herself. Like you sit down with her and every story ends with her pulling a gun on someone or some other tragic thing, which is, she's just so, so raw and different, but she'll just say things that are, it, it's on her mind at the time and it means nothing. And it, you have to just learn to know that she loves you, wants to see the best for you, but the words you just got to kind of, to walk past that. So once you understand some of those deeper things that helps you there, when, when you hear something that is just like, wow, that would be horrific. If, you know, somebody, if your mother said something like that to you, <laughs> that, that's, I give that's some wild. examples, but I don't, I don't think this is the right uh, forum or format for that. So. Okay. So this, this must've been something that you've thought about having kids. How do you create adversity the proper amount of adversity for your child so that they grow, but not so that it's like a ridiculous for them, right? Cause you want to keep them safe, but maybe too much safety means they're going to have a harder time yeah. when things actually get hard. So have you figured out how to balance that? Oh God, I have not figured that out, but I can tell you yeah. my approach. So yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, well, let's start with a little bit of developmental kinesiology first. So this is just straight motor littering patterns, and that'll help frame my conversation. So this first piece doesn't directly tie in, but it will from a philosophy standpoint. So uh, every human being is born with the patterns of how we move and how we stabilize. And, and that process uh, happens over a nine month period of time. So every week and every month, the exact same things will start happening from moving to a rolling pattern to reaching and stabilizing with per certain parts of your hand. And then you start advancing to you know, being able to get towards a standing and then walking position. 
And everybody's, and it's important that we, we continually challenge and work. It's just like working out, right? The more you do it, the better we get, the more these patterns are able to develop appropriately. What people like to do when their baby's getting that, it's like, oh, my baby's walking at eight months or something. And they start holding their hands and showing people, look, the, you know, my cute little daughter's, you know, walking, I'm going to help. And here's a walker and you're walking around. And it actually can create damage. Uh, because you teach to stabilize off of this distal end. It starts elevating a rib cage. It'll start changing some breathing patterns and other stuff that happen. And so it's actually bad practice to, to do that consistently and get your baby walking sooner than it should. In fact, you should stick your foot out and swipe it and knock your baby down. <laughs> so I'm being a little bit you know cheeky with this, but... They, they actually need to practice and continue to get that and have the challenge of it and fail and keep coming back, right? And that's how those patterns are taught is not by just like, oh, yeah, I'm a success the first time and now I'm walking and I may need the help and support to get there. That actually doesn't teach the, you know, our, our body, our nervous system have the practice to be successful. So in, in my opinion, one of the best things that you can do as a parent is let your child fail. And that is, it's not a bad thing. Think back on your life and some of your failures end up being the catalyst for one significant amount of confidence. And that may not make sense at first, but like once you fail at something or don't, maybe it's not failure, but don't get what you hope to, oh, that's just failure. And you come back around, you study more, you work harder, you train longer, you, you practice more, you, and then you come back around and you, and you pull it off and you do it. Like that is, that is an, an integral part of life because things are, are not going to come your way the first time. And so it's learning the ability to do that, the ability to not take the initial failure and knowing that you have the ability to, to come around and get it no matter what that is huge, but the confidence that it instills. And I didn't start thinking about this until, you know, I was kind of challenged more recently in some recent years about like my, I'm a bit cocky. I'm, I'm confident. I can believe I, I believe I can do these crazy over the top things. If I just choose to do it, it's just a matter of, I haven't chosen to do that yet, but I could do it. It's like, where does that come from? And I'm like, it comes from layering these, these overcoming one on top of the other. So it's just like training. You go into the gym and you do some curls and your arm gets a little bit stronger. And the next time around, you know, you've got the confidence as well as the neurological and physical capabilities to, to do the last workout, but do a little bit more maybe. And then you keep going because you can't just go into the gym, your first session and squat 500 pounds, right? But you can know I could squat 500 pounds, it's just going to take me a lot of this stuff that I've learned of discipline and follow through and stick into a plan. Like, and I've demonstrated that in some other man. So I know I can do that. Right. And, but to get there is just layering the win on top of the win on top of the win until you get to this point in life where you're able to, to accomplish crazy over the top things, because now you've got the capacity. So, and that is, that's the important thing to understand. It's all about building the capacity to handle these sorts of things. So thinking about it in a workout space helps people because you continually progress your physical capacity, right? Over time, 
But that's that's resilience. That's strength. Strength is resilience. Your ability to adapt and overcome the the stress and the challenges coming your way. Well, it is the exact same process for mind and soul. So body, you know, building resilience of body, mind, and soul are all the same things. And I am, I am not over speaking on this. I'm not being ethereal at all. Like the, if I quit doing the curls, let's say I break my arm and it goes in a cast. What -hmm. happens nine months later, six months later, when they take the cast off? Atrophied. Uh, Arm is atrophied. I'm looking out my window. You can't see, but there's some trees behind me and they're blowing in the wind. If those trees were planted in an environment where there was no wind, they would grow to a certain height and they would fall over. I'm not making this up. It took the scientists a while to figure this out when they were putting trees in biodomes (laughs) because they kept happening. Didn't matter what kind, but there was no resilience telling the tree to build, you know, grow strong roots deep into the ground and root properly. Right. Um, the same thing, the outer, the, the bark on the outside will be different and so on. Like, it's not, I'm not being ethereal. Like this is, this isn't just human physiology. This is all living beings. If we do not have challenge, the process, basically death, this retiring on the beach, drinking Mai Tais, that's the end, right? And this is why you could be a war here 20 years ago and then you didn't, nothing happened. You get soft. You could get soft if you just sit and do nothing. If I don't work out, if I don't work out my mind, if I don't, if I don't take on challenge in these areas, you get soft. And next thing you know, something's going to happen, and you're going to freeze up and not be able to handle it and shut down, right? So it's about building and layering the capacity. And uh, and sorry, I'm on. I'm off on a tangent. I don't no, remember the, uh, the original question, but this is. I mean, this is the whole reason I wrote my book because all my businesses are focused on the physical nature. And this is some of the stuff that I'm trying to share is, is that all these challenges and, and struggles and strife in life, they are the things that are going to allow you to be better, to grow. And I don't want to disregard, like if someone's had some traumatic experiences, like Yes, that can negatively affect you. So if you're that person, you hear me, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's already happened. And it's not the it's not the definition of who you are. You're defined by your actions and responses to that. And more importantly, if it's already happened, why can't you use what you can from it in a positive manner? To leap, to leap you forward, to be that, to, to allow you to be stronger, to be more resilient for something else that maybe in the future that you're you're not anticipating, right? And this isn't just like trauma. This is like, this is everything going on around you every day. This is the hard conversation with your aunt uh, that you, you that you have been putting off and don't want, or your your partner, or your boss, or your coworker. It's the the project at work, or wherever that you're. I hope I don't get like I don't know if I can pull that off, or that career change that you're you really want to do and you're, you're excited about, but you're anxious. What about like not making some money or can I pull it off or going back to school or starting, starting your own company or any of these Mm -hmm. sorts of things They could be small and they could be big and they're happening to you all the time. And our inclination when that, when our gut starts like getting in a knot about those things is to turn away. I don't want to have that conversation. Now, if if I don't say it'll go away, it'll go away. Uh, And 
it, it, it more than likely it's not going to go away. And, uh, but being the person that practices going, I feel that I feel myself kind of tensing up. That is your signal right now that that means that's an opportunity for me. That is another moment that I can take advantage of and practice, practice living in that uncomfortable space, practice being afraid, practice overcoming this and knowing because there's going to be something more difficult in the future than, than that, you know, that conversation or that, uh, that choice. Right. And so that is your chance to, to take that on. And I'm not saying every one of those is going to be successful, but the practice of doing this certainly is because that's going to build up your resilience to take on those things. And guess what? The big things in life that really shake and change you up aren't things that you anticipate some random Thursday afternoon, wham, you've had some of them happen to you this year. Right. And it's just like, you didn't see that coming. And, uh, being able to not freeze up and lock up and know that, fuck, that's hard. I got this though. I can figure out a way. I don't know how I'm going to do this right now, but I know I can overcome it. Right. Okay. That was, that was fantastic. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your experience with your body and overcoming things. So, um, I think one of the areas I haven't, and there's reasons for everything, but one of the reasons, one of the things that I need to work more on is my like muscular strength and the stress resiliency that potentially comes with being physically stronger. So could you maybe talk about your experience about like what being strong has potentially done for your stress tolerance? Yeah. Yeah. So it has a much bigger impact than people think. So I'm going to just start with this question of, for you, uh, what do you think is the number one healthcare cost? I don't have the studies worldwide, but healthcare cost in America. So it could be heart disease, diabetes, cancer, something else. Just a quick uh, shot. Obesity? Low back pain. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Low back pain. And most all of low back pain can be dealt with by having more resilience. People don't realize that the working out, doing it appropriately shouldn't cause pain. In fact, it will make you more resilient to being able to be in different positions and be under load and do these things so that that one you know, getting out of your car that one day and twisting or twisting over, reaching down and picking up your child. And all of a sudden it's like, damn, that threw my back out. Yep. It wasn't that that thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, most everybody has at some point in their life. And I'll tell you about something. I had it happen and I had to learn to walk again. Oh, I couldn't move for weeks. Not even my head. Uh, What happened? I had to, I had to walk her. And I had to learn to walk, to walk again. Um, well, I was challenging myself on the resilience side too much. So this is like the burning the candle on both ends too much. Right. So we've got to understand that anything, even the past conversations I had, you have to temper with that's pouring your cup out. It's like, you know, you're taking on challenge. You're choosing to to dive into these things. You've got to refill it. Right. Mm -hmm. So Um, and some, so if you push it too far and don't have that, like, obviously I was saying, you know, if you rest and recover constantly or too long, 
the process of atrophy starts. So we don't want to be, but you have to be there, you know, intermittently as we're, as we're progressing, as we're taking things off. So a little vacation, a little meditation, a little yoga or whatever it is that, that, you know, reinvigorates you is good living that for a life is bad. So, um, anyway, I was pushing my limits, trying to do something, uh, over the top as a long time ago, uh, chasing some records. So I didn't mention in my life story yet. I'd done a lot of lifting. Uh, so I, this was ranked number one in the world for like eight years straight. Uh, Casual. I, uh, set all time, uh, records. And then later I did, uh, some like feats of street strength, feats of strength things. I mentioned a couple of those, but, um, somewhere in there, I, I, I pushed it too far and that's what happened. But I came back around. I had the confidence to come back around and demonstrate that I could do something that actually was the two most demanding things on being able to stabilize and maintain spinal position under load. <laughs> to at a, at a level that no one's ever done before with no, with no back pain. So when we talk about defining yourself, a lot of people will come to this thing going, I'm the person with a bad back or that's going to be like this forever. So yeah. let's get back to developing. Let's de get back to the conversation about what is it to develop resilience, but understanding fundamentally, it is going to allow you to withstand stuff to be able to live a better quality of life, to have, you know, all the little things in life not cause an injury, right? To be able to do something and improving that physical capacity as a whole, it's also going to have an impact. You, uh, you need to be chasing these things, body, mind, and soul. If you're not the, uh, they're all related, right? So like the strength athlete or, you know, meathead guru, that's only on this strength aspect, they're going to have big gaps, right? Because they're not attacking, you know, the other two components and same thing. If you're focused on self-improvement on those other two, but not addressing this, you're going to, I mean, just the physical nature of it is proven over and over again to have a huge impact on mental health. So, mm -hmm. so there it, it's a matter of being rounded and being and pushing that. And we, we could look at it back from a, a philosophical or yeah, well, uh, great thinkers of the past, but, uh, um, this was a really common, uh, theme that, you know, there's a great, uh, quote from Socrates, although there's question about how much of a, an athlete, uh, he was, uh, Hippocrates, the, you know, founder of modern medicine, uh, has an incredible quote about like the, basically like, uh, lifting and moving is going to fundamentally take care of nearly all of your physical ailments, right? So it's a matter of balancing that with rest. God, I wish I had that quote in front of me. Um, I, uh, dang it. Anyway, I'm not going to look it up because that'll interfere. Um, it, it, it's important to have that strong mind and strong back. It's important for not just being able to not have back pain, right? But to improve your, your, your immune resistance, your ability to uh, adapt it, all of it, actually your body, when it senses stress, it is, it, it's all coming from the same bucket. So this is something like if you're lifting, you have to also understand this, the other stresses in life are going to put the same kind of drain on you. So if you have major stresses, if you're a type A personality, you know, pushing hard in business world, you, you can't just walk into the gym and hammer everything that you got all the time as well. So it's understanding that. But as we're developing the capacity over time, it's going to have an effect on all those areas of your life as well. So important, important aspect. And so as we're thinking about this thing, we want to think about 
uh, how do we build that? Because a big, a big problem is people jump into, well, that's great. And then they go all in. Oh, running's great. I'm going to go run five miles a day. Oh, uh, I'm going to start training five, six days a week <laughs> and, and dieting and, 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 and adding all this stuff on. And what we want to do is actually, there's a reason for this. So I'm not just going to say it, uh, but we want to do it with the, what's called the minimal effective dose. We want to do the minimal amount of work that's going to allow change because it's all about layering those capacities. But that means also over time to achieve more results, you have to add more. So if you throw everything at once at front, then you've got nowhere else to go. Uh, we see this like in the dieting world, people want to exercise, take their diet way down, uh, do, you know, maybe even add some drugs in or, you know, some stimulants or whatever it is. And they put everything in there. And then it's like, they make great progress for like eight weeks and then it stalls. And where else do you have to go? You can't pull more calories out. You can't exercise more. Like you've already, you've already put all that. But the other side is also the injury prevention side. And this is well studied um, that if, so what we have is, basically what is your average like workload uh, over a period of time? So let's say three to six months time. Um, the word for that is actually uh, a chronic, but it's, it sounds terrible. Um, but uh, uh, that we'll just use average for this discussion. Okay. So your average workload, and then you have your short period, like in a week, and that's a called acute. And so over time, you want to increase that. That's actually what's going to provide the gains, but not too much, uh, because again, you have nowhere else to reach. But also for the reason that if you take the way you do it is you obviously spike a short term, and that's going to start bringing your average up. But if you bring more than a 10 to 15% increase in volume uh, over your average, that's going to instigate about 80% of the injuries that we see. So in athletic populations. 80% is a result of that. Not right at then at the moment, but like five or six weeks later, you'll see, oh man, I've got this nagging elbow, this nagging wrist. And then that starts mm -hmm. affecting your long-term adherence and discipline because now you're off plan, you're reducing, you're coming around uh, and you're not able to, to step that up. And then the other, so, so, so you want to, that, that's why we can't just go all in because it's going to, we don't have the capacity to handle that. We have to build that. Um, and so that's the, the important lesson there is you've got to stare that up. You've got to stare that up, but slowly within that, the, those tolerance and then understand like, cause here's a big problem people have is like, oh, I was doing it great. And then I went on vacation and then you come back and you're like, well, I missed a week or two. What are you going to do? Going to make up for lost time and hit it harder. Well, that's the exact opposite because you've actually just moved your average down and your ability to tolerate that load coming back in, even your normal is actually reduced. So it's, it may not be the message that people want to hear, but we've got to <laughs> ease into this stuff because it, but the beautiful thing is it just builds over time. If you do that, that is you're going to build that capacity over time to handle this stuff. And that's, so these are some fundamental exercise science stuff. This kind of fits into something called periodization, but um, those are really important concepts to understand because it comes with everything. Let's say um, minimalist footwear. There was a, there was a big company about 10, a little over 10 years ago that came out with uh, finger shoes. And uh, there was a documentary born, born to run and all the runners 
great mentality. Their mentality is always more is better. Right. And it's like, Oh, that's better. Let's go do it. Start running 20, 20, uh, 20 miles a day with those shoes, but they don't have strength in their foot yet because they haven't built that capacity. Their foot's been all mummified. Just like if you walked in every morning, if, if you woke up in the day and wrapped your, put your weightlifting belt on and wrapped your elbows and wrapped your knees, that would actually decrease your strength. Right. Uh, and it wouldn't make you healthier and stronger and it would cause other things to happen in your body, which I'm getting into a whole minimalist footwear discussion, but they don't, <laughs> their foot's not strong. They haven't been using it. And so they go out and do that. And in fact, they actually need to wear those type of shoes or do that type of work about 10% of the time to start with for the first month oh, and then okay. increase it and then increase it because they're actually having to increase the strength of the foot that the shoes aren't the answer. Having a stronger functional foot is, and their shoes were working against them in that fashion. And this is, this is a really cool story. So uh, related to it. So I'm on a side topic, but it is <laughs> very related. So, um, and this is a documented story by one of the, the original people involved with, with Nike, uh, which has why all running shoes today are built with an elevated uh, heel and arch supports uh, built into them because they started pushing this as in the seventies getting running was not that commonplace within, you know, the normal everyday population. And there was wrote a book and stuff was coming out and that was starting to a change that was starting to come about and they're making their running shoes and heeled shoes, even, you know, men's shoes was, was common. That's, and it still is today. Uh, and it's actually a result of far back because, the only reason we have heels is for stirrups for riding horses. So <laughs> that's where the whole elevated th heel came from, but then it rolled into fashion. Right. And then they were starting to promote running and they're starting to see injuries. Well, the reason they're seeing injuries is people didn't have the capacity within their calf muscles. They've been sitting in a shortened, uh, in a shortened position from all the heeled shoes, not the strength from using the foot and all this sort of stuff. And so the question is, what do we do? And uh, uh, I think he was a podiatrist, uh, and he now says it's the the worst uh, worst decision he uh, he definitely worst decision he made, and he uh, regrets doing it. But they suggested let's just go ahead and put an elevated heel in the running shoes so that people don't have those injuries because they're going to instead of providing the education, right? And now that's what we have around the world. And then now with the elevated heel, it puts the pressure on the toe. We've got the inward toe and we basically yeah. lose control and stability of uh, the knee and hip complex. And so then you have to passively support it by building in an arch support because the system to stabilize that is shut off. You can test this. Anyone listening to this, get down in a squat position barefoot. Okay. And pick your big toe up and raise and pull it in just like it was in a shoe and you're healed and then move your knee around a little bit and you'll see that it just falls inward and you lack control. Now grab your big toe, yeah. pull it wider than it normally would be because by the way, it's deformed from your shoes. So pull it out and press it down and then push that into the ground and now do the same test and you'll see a huge difference. So oh, that's interesting. Um, isn't it crazy? Yeah. Um, and so because of, you know, one thing, then you start having to build all these other band-aids on. I mean, it's just straight, I mean, meta analysis of all the research uh, done on orthotics, which is an entire industry, right? And also mm -hmm. a big piece mm -hmm. of like shoe design as well, right? And our athletic science issue. Um, 
shows that there is no long-term benefit whatsoever. There's relief in pain for a six to eight week period of time. Just like if my elbow hurt and I wrapped it right in the, the example I was talking about earlier, it's going to provide some relief. But if I wake up every day and do that all day long till night, it, long-term, it's actually going to cause more problems and cause problems in other areas of my body as I start to compensate. So there's no scientific evidence. Well, actually the scientific evidence is that it doesn't do anything beneficial. And, you know, I can, I can work with people and help you start strengthening your foot and just using it. You'll see that back and hip pain uh, and knee pain, those sorts of things just start dissipating, but it's, it's not the shoe. It's the, the ability to strengthen, manage the, the foot complex. Well, I got on a big tangent, but it's, it's strength. I like, and so this, it, 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 this is, and this is the impact of strength. This is what it has. And this is another feeder right into like the number one healthcare cost in America, back pain. So, um, so anyway, from, a from a, uh, while we're on the subject, I just want to cover a couple things. So, um, the ability to control and manage spinal mechanics is the number one global impact on the whole body. Okay. And uh, that is accomplished through the use of the diaphragm in relation to the pelvic floor. This sounds like a lot of, you know, complexity, but it's, it's basically getting your, your rib cage in alignment with the pelvis. And then we use the diaphragm and it descends downward, but basically imagine inflating your stomach all 360 degrees around Uh, just a little bit of the pressure. It depends on the movement, but that will create the stabilization It actually creates pressure against all the organs and the organs around the spine, and then causes a co-contraction you don't need to know all this stuff because it'll happen automatically of all the outer sheath of muscles. So obviously the, the abdominals, the rectus, the, the obliques, the thoracolumbar musculature, as well as the pelvic floor all come in, but the two have to be like this. Now, a lot of us walk around with elevated, you know, men just kind of show off their chest, women maybe show off their chest, uh, whatever the reason, shoes actually uh, kick the pelvis forward, which causes the same. So, um, and uh, so the elevated shoe, even in running or walking causes an overstride, which kicks the pelvis forward as well. It all feeds in as well as stress and technology. So just like being on Mm -hmm. technology devices uh, and high stress situations all cause a change in breathing patterns. And so the breathing patterns shift into the chest instead of um, uh, what's called diaphragmatic breathing, but you would feel it in your belly, air still coming in your chest because this is where your lungs are. But that sensation um, will is what the diaphragm, but it starts shifting those those patterns into an upward motion. So your, your shoulders and traps will kind of mm-hmm. elevate. If you put your hands up here, your collarbone, when you're breathing, if, it'll move up and down. If that's the case, that's not, it shouldn't have an elevation as it's going. It should actually be outward, kind of like a wave from the bottom up, even into the low rib cage will expand, but not push forward. So we don't want to elevate our, our chest. Anyway, um, that's important to understand because if the breathing patterns break down, that's one function of the diaphragm. So the diaphragm covers um, uh, respiration, stabilization, and the sphincter. But the, it'll start messing with the stabilization function. And so then now we start getting a lot of stuff going on. And so um, if we don't have stability, um, our body starts compensating uh, by tightening. If, 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 if it senses that there's instability or weakness, so again, this could be the foot with our packaged up shoe, it'll start tightening the muscles around a joint to protect it. And so the best yeah. uh, way 
a great way to explain this is a car analogy. So um, most modern cars, they have a traction control little button in there, right? And a lot of people think that when the traction control is on, if I'm going around a corner and it's wet or icy, it's going to take the power from the wheels that are slipping and put it to the wheels that are gripping. But it doesn't do that. It wants to do the same thing your, your neurological system and your body does, which is if it senses that you're in danger because we lack stability or, uh, or strength, it wants to save you so that you don't go sliding off the road and burn a fiery death, for example, in the car examples. So how it does this, it goes, ah, we don't have stability. We're going to reduce the, we're going to reduce the, uh, the, 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 um, sorry, <laughs> too much talking for me today. So, um, <laughs> Uh, it's going to uh, retard the timing on the, on the engine. It's going to reduce the power output of the vehicle. It's going to reduce the shift patterns and de it's going to detune the system so that as we do that, now the tires don't slip and we don't burn that fiery death by flying off the road. Well, our body does the same thing. So you can think about that, even from a training perspective, like that means like, it's not just a conversation of, of health and, you know, uh, you know, in far as injury prevention, but actually just being able to realize your potential. So if we've got our stabilization mechanisms on, we can do just like a performance race car that doesn't have a traction control. It's, it's like put on a good, good pair of tires that are connected to the ground, our feet, put the foot, you know, put, you know, put our foot to the, uh, to the, to the floor on the gas pedal and, you know, take it. So, that is, uh, our body does the same thing. So like people that, you know, have tight hips from squatting, well, they don't have tight hips from squatting. They have tight hips from squatting like shit. So <laughs> if you're not moving well and you're, you, you are going to have this stuff happen. And so, so it's just an important piece to understand, like how important these mechanisms are. So if I don't control, so the, the spine and the spinal mechanics is number one, largest global impact. The foot is number two as the secondary largest. So, so these have a huge impact for our whole body and being able to, we need to be able to strengthen and use those resources and learn how to manage and control them. It's that simple. That was the okay. point of that. That okay, long dissertation that, that makes sense. That we, I, I may have, not need to go into, but I'm sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I actually, I actually have a few questions. So I, I have two. Um, I, I've done some research. I mean, I have like an ankle replacement, which really screwed up one of my legs. So I know about foot problems. But also, since having a kid, I've seen these, you know, seen these shoes where it's like this is what a human foot is supposed to look like, and it yes. looks kind of like yep. a hand. And then you see yep. what a human foot from wearing shoes looks like, and I was like, oh my god, I don't want to do that to Scarlet, like my little kid, like make yep. her shoe feet are all screwed up. So, but she doesn't like. She's a super girly girl. She only wears pink. She doesn't like the shoes that aren't going to destroy her feet. So she's been wearing flip-flops. So how do you feel about flip-flops versus the ones that constrict your foot? Um, so there's a lot of people that will tell you that flip-flops are bad. They are far superior to putting the foot in a shoe because the shoe okay. is physically going to deform it. The only negative is a slight, like having to pick it up. So if you can get something that maybe has a strap or something, or just like, uh, catches on the front of the foot too, in a fact that they, they don't have to really hold it on with any toe work is. Great. Oh, okay. Okay. And then also the great thing about flip-flops is they kick off really easy, uh, because 
that's your time, like being able to feel and move the ground, uh, you know, run around in the backyard on the grass and have some, you know, be able to move the foot um, play. I mean, that is, and so you don't have to, I, I'm not this hardcore, like, oh, you've got to live a barefoot lifestyle. Like, you know, if I go out to dinner, my wife may dress up and put on a pair of heels. Like, yeah, so, um, but you still need, it's just like spend some time using them and strengthening them. And then in the, in the shoe, they'll, they'll, they'll work better. But yeah, it's a big problem with the minimalist uh, uh, movement. This is going to sound really bad uh, the way I frame it. And hopefully nobody takes this personally, but like it, they're all designed for hippies and runners. And I'll tell you, if I start wearing those, like those finger shoes that I, I mentioned, if I go home, and my wife sees me in those like <laughs> her sex drive or interest in me is like this. And we're, I'm like, I, it's, I, I just state in reality. Uh, and I, you know, that's uh, if you want to have, <laughs> if you want to enjoy some bedroom yes. time with your partner, a lot of those are just not good choices. Right. So, so this is a reality, like fashion is important and, and it's gonna, it's a reality. Maybe it's not important, but it, it is a reality that we live in. And, and so, um, that has been an important piece that I'm trying to address. Again, you know, I live in Portland. Yeah, you know, I've got a lot of hippies and runners as friends. I'm just like joking about it. Not joking about the sex thing, though. I'm, that's real. But with the toe <laughs> shoes, it's definitely real. <laughs> it's definitely real. Yeah. Um, but all the minimalist companies are focused on the same target market, and so they're not providing any alternatives for the rest of the world. Yeah. Right. And so that's, uh, that's all I'm trying to do with my company barefoot. That's B E A R. Um, like a kid running around in the mountains, uh, running from bears barefoot. Like I was, you know, anyway. Um, so, uh, but it's to, to create something that is, that looks better that you could wear, like I'll wear mine with a, with a suit, you know, maybe it wouldn't work for a lot of people in some suit environments, but you get my friend, like it works great in a lot of environments and we're coming out with a boot next. And the boot oh, cool. is designed for people that go hunting, that have a blue collar job where they've got to wear a work boot because these people boots are absolutely horrible for feet, the stiffness and the, like the ability of how they control the foot. And once you start like doing and your foot starts working, right. Boots will just make you ache and hurt nearly immediately. And I get comments like, what do I do when I go to work? Mm -hmm. There's no great alternatives. So this fall, we're coming out with one. It's actually being tested by an elite, uh, a green beret team, uh, right now. Cool. Uh, so, uh, getting it put thoroughly through its paces, but it's, you know, it's, um, God, I hate the word alpha, but it's like, you know, it's that for that type of character person, uh, that is living in this environment that is, will never put on a, on a shoe that is targeted towards the, the other environment. Right. So yeah. anyway, it's just helping try to, you know, helping a different yeah. group that doesn't have an alternative right now. And I don't have a, I don't have any kids shoes yet. So, um, and yeah, a lot of them are the, the girly girls, like my daughter, same thing. She, you know, she's only three years old, but she's yeah. got to have, you know, uh, but the alternative is just making sure that they have time to play without shoes. To it yeah. doesn't have to be all the time. And that is, that's the issue because some, you know, it's just like over time, people think it's like, oh, you're just, you're just not buying the shoes that fit. But over your life, you'll see that your, your foot will change. So you spend, I spent five to, I spent about six years barefoot and the shape of my foot and its functionality changed dramatically.
and my thousand pound squat for reps, my thousand pound deadlift for reps, mm. those were done shoeless. Even though I have the company because I'm like, I'm not trying to sell you a shoe. Like this is like, this is something I believe in. If you can go train that way, just go train that way. Right. Um, but I did that because it's a performance enhancer. Like I'm able to perform better. I have a greater connection and proprioception to the ground. Right. And so, uh, all the stuff that I design is kind of built around these concepts like Kabuki strength. Um, our products were used by 29 of the 30 major league baseball teams were used by 90% of all professional sports in North America were used by any major college that you could think of 600 plus more were used by if you, yeah. So if you have a, a, a sports star, they're using our stuff. LeBron's got our stuff at his house at his trainer's gym at the Lakers, as well as the rest of the starting line. If you <laughs> watch movies and you watch any action movies, the, the stars and the stuntmen are probably using our stuff. Uh, Marvel Studios filming right now. They're all, they've got our stuff out back in the trailer that they're training in. Uh, Black Adam, awesome. same thing. The Rock's got our bars in every location that he trains at. So he's got eight of them <laughs> in all these different locations. Because this is what our products do. What they do is allow us to get our joints in the right position. And they accommodate for variability in a lifter or a human. They accommodate for variability in lever lengths, mobility restrictions, and training needs. Like based on, you know, your ankle, you're going to mm -hmm. move a little different than other people. It's fairly the different, rock, yeah. He's 6'5". He's not going to be able to do the things that, that's the reason he uses our stuff. He cannot do a squat with any, without pain with any other things than our bars. So if you watch any of his ads, videos, anything where he's doing squats, lunges, anything like that, that's our bar on his back. Cool. Because it actually accommodates and it moves. It allows us to manipulate the spinal position, which is crazy. It's the only bar in the world that we can actually, that you can actually do that with. So, so our bars that do that, they, they allow for the, uh, that rapidly accommodating for those needs as well as, as, as they're doing that, we're getting the joints in what we call the right centration. So that's a fancy term. It just means that we have the right proper length tension relationship of the muscles around the joint so that the stabilizers are working as stabilizers and the prime movers are working as prime movers. Because when that breakdown starts happening, that's when you start getting in. That's like breakdown and breathing patterns and all the other stuff. Right. And, um, so it's, you know, if you're, if your arms fully stretched, it's not as strong as when it's in its optimal working range versus when it's all the way in again, it's, it's, it's weaker again. So those extents. So when you're arched way up or in these weird, funky positions, we've actually got muscles in a short position with muscles in a long position. And so we allow the proper centration and then the stacking of joints. And all of a sudden you can, you can have somebody that couldn't even do like, let's say a bench press without pain. This is, we got time for a short little story. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, maybe not funny. So it's funny <laughs> in the fact that, so every major league baseball uh, coach, nearly every, let's say 80%, probably 60, 80% uh, head strength coach has shoulder problems and they can't bench press because they've had a surgery or pain or whatever. So it's just, 
you know, that shoulder demands in that sport are pretty heavy and it's just, mm-hmm. just the way it is. So, um, I went to spring training with one of our bars that's a pressing bar because they're all in Arizona. They're all right by each other. So I can see about three or four teams a day. We're friends with all of them provide, you know, and I go in with this bar and they're like, ah, no, no, I can't, you know, I, you know, I haven't been able to bench press for like five years. It's, I can't even take a bar to my chest. It hurts. I'm like, ah, try this, take it down. And it's our bars curved is actually three inches greater range of motion than others, but it's built to ha- be able to just have these things happen. And so I did this over uh, the course of two days and I visited five different teams and this happened on five occasions um, with five different coaches, same story, same thing happened. And uh, they ended up working up to two plates. So 225 pounds and doing reps with it mm. for their first time pressing in years and their staff. I mean, cause they all know it. They're standing there, just jaws hanging down. They're like, gets up. How bad that hurt? It didn't hurt at all. No pain. Uh, just from these minor, cause you think about the traction control analogy. There's a reason I went through that whole thing. Like so much is neurological. And if we're not, if we're stuffing everybody, you know, round pegs through square holes and trying to make it happen like it doesn't work but if we if we can work on getting these things in the right position the right things happening the neurological changes happen and then all of a sudden we're allowed to move and now we can move and now we can adapt and now we can build resilience and now we can get out of this and that's the that's the beautiful thing is to be able to provide people the opportunity to get out of pain and live a better yeah. quality of life through developing strength. It's not about being like me and squatting a thousand pounds. Like that's not what it's about. It's about this. It's about giving that person that's been in debilitating back pain, you know, a lease on life again and allow them to get in the gym and train and do so pain-free that changes people's lives. It changes yeah. people's minds. Yeah. It does. It does some amazing things. So this is, this is why I'm so passionate about this stuff. Well, it's probably my backstory. You can understand the resilience piece, but this is, uh, <laughs> this is, this is how I express it <laughs> in the world. That's very cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much for telling me a bit about yourself and coming on. Uh, can you tell anybody interested in following you where to find you, where to find your products, a little bit about your book? Yeah. So I've got actually got a, I just setting it up right now, but if you go to my website, uh, my personal website, Chris Duffin, that's like muffin, but with a D it's pretty easy to remember. Um, I, I will give you a free copy, the first half of my book. So the book is the Eagle and the dragon. Oh, nice. Okay. And, uh, and, and so that'll, you know, sign up for the email list there and you'll get, uh, you'll, uh, you'll get, uh, exclusive educational content from each of my companies, exclusive discounts to them. Uh, and then, like I said, a free copy of my book, 100% free, no strings attached other than your email. And, uh, there's also a link, uh, it's, it's free, but not quite free. Uh, I, I can't help that it's through audible, but you can, if you don't have an audible account, uh, you can, uh, get my book and one other book for free. If you sign up, uh, for an account through my website, which is a cool deal, which is why I put it on there, but you know, there's, you have to sign up for account. So, uh, if you've got an account, obviously it's just a credit, um, same thing with social media. So there's links to all my companies there. So Kabuki strength, barefoot athletics and build fast formula. Um, 
I don't want to over, you don't have to remember screen name avatar, just I'll, type in Chris Duffin them. on social media. It's like super easy. You, everybody's got these fancy handhold devices. Type me in <laughs> Google, I pop up. Um, but the places I interact on uh, the most are Instagram, uh, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And so those are, uh, those are great places to find me. Um, on Instagram, I'm doing a whole series on change management. Uh, it's actually um, kind of a feeder into my next book. So right now I think I have 13 chapters on there, about 20, 30 minutes a piece, incredible stuff. The most in-depth series that I've done. Um, so we didn't talk about this sort of stuff, but uh, uh, leadership, uh, uh, execution, these sorts of things, like I have significant processes and depth of knowledge there that I'm uh, working on uh, getting out there with my next book, which is create shit, do shit, live beyond the extremes, uh, the unconventional executives guide to business and life. So, uh, but those three things like I think embody a lot of what I, what I say and preach. So that's for free. So go to the guides on my Instagram and you'll find them all organized right on there. Um, so there's great content on there. They're posted in the other areas, but I can't, they, there's no way to like organize it. So the Instagram's great for that. So. Well, thank you very much for coming on. That was, that was very interesting. Thank you. I appreciate being on.